0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoted for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults
3: Same suit, different generation. Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth are protecting the universe from the scum of the earth in Men in Black International. We are the best kept secret
2: in the universe.
3: And in Film Club, they walk in shadow, move in silence, guard against extraterrestrial violence It's the original Men in Black. More non-humans arrive
4: every year and they live among us in secret.
3: And then director Asif Kapadia shakes the hand of God in the football documentary Diego Maradona. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Welcome, welcome podcast listeners. It's Michael Leader here in the host chair, sitting across from Adam Woodward of Little White Lies. Hello. And Carl Anker. Welcome back, Carl. It's been a while.
5: It has. I haven't been here since, I think, Endgame. No, Infinity War, even longer. Infinity War,
3: all's changed since then. People have been snapped, brought back to life, whole universes have changed. How have you been?
5: Good, good. I've been really good. I've watched many films, not enough of them, without superheroes. So let's talk about one with superhero-adjacent
3: characters. Yeah, it's a superhero-free week, but it is still definitely summer blockbuster Mm -hmm. season. Or is Diego Maradona a superhero of football? Um, We'll have to find out (laughs) later. But first, let's talk about Men in Black International. F. Gary Gray is in the director's chair for this sci-fi comedy update with Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth donning the suits and shades. Thompson's newbie, Agent M, who tracked down the Men in Black years after her family had a close encounter, teams up with Hemsworth Agent H of MIB's London branch to tackle the biggest threat to Earth's safety yet, a mole in the Men in Black organisation. We are
2: a rumour recognizable only as deja vu, and dismissed just as quickly. We are the best kept secret in the universe. I know, I want in. You erased my parents' memories, but you didn't get mine. Took me 20 years to find you. How many people can say that? I found you, which makes me perfect for this job.
3: Tessa Thompson and Emma Thompson there in that clip. Emma Thompson, one of the few returning strands for this Men in Black International. Everything else, pretty brand new. Carl, are we excited about a reboot sequel for the Men in Black franchise? Not really. So when the first trailer came out,
5: it very much was, hello, you get to see Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth in a suit. Here are two of the most bankable, likeable, most charismatic stars. Very well tailored. Mm -hmm. And I thought... That's not a bad way to repeat your franchise. Mm-hmm. And I had a similar thing when watching it. In the first 20 minutes, I thought, this script's a bit all over the place. It feels mm-hmm. as if there are two or three scripts being copy-pasted together, but you're trying to get by on the charisma of these two stars in suits. And then an hour and 20 mm-hmm. minutes in, I thought, oh, no, it kind of works. Okay, Just just the sheer charisma of two of the best in Hollywood right now in nice clothing, has Mm -hmm. made me nicely entertained.
3: And they were good in Thor Ragnarok a few years ago. That's one of those pairings where people said, put them in a buddy movie. Yes. And it seems like the Hollywood gods listened and made that happen. Adam, were you on board? Were you excited for this one up front? Uh, I must say, I was intrigued by the casting. I think Uh it was a a franchise which I
6: hadn't even thought about or thought merited a, a reboot. But... Yeah, definitely bring it back if you're going to put into, as you say, very likable, very sort of bankable stars. Um, I can't really remember them sharing too much screen time in Thor Ragnarok Mm -hmm. and again in Endgame, but... Tessa Thompson just seems to be; she's such a kind of winning presence in, in everything she's mm-hmm. in, and, and I think Chris Hemsworth. I, I was sort of saying to a fellow critic before the, the screening yesterday. I can't think of a bad film or a bad performance that he's given in a film. He's always he always delivers something, always mm-hmm. brings something, and I think he does some something here quite interesting. He's he's actually playing up that the sort of Mister Universe handsome persona, yeah. but. He's also a bit of a dick, and he's a bit arrogant, and <laughs> there's this idea that he was the kind of golden boy of, uh, of the MIB, um, London branch, we should say. Is he doing a London accent, in, a British is accent? Is he supposed like to be British? I'm not sure.
3: It's, it's very loose, but, yeah. uh,
6: but you know, he he kind of coasts along through this pretty much on his own charisma. Mm-hmm. I thought his arc as a character was a little bit unsatisfying. Hers is, is maybe a little bit more rounded in that in that way, but... You know, not only the tailored suits, we should say, but he gets to wear an assortment. He has quite a few costume changes in this. The pink, kind of salmon pink chinos. Yeah.
5: Which are very nice. He's Indiana Jones-esque
3: um, in Oh, you film. mean with the amount of buttons undone? The, the amount, amount
5: of buttons of, undone, yeah. this sort of globe trotting feel. There's a lovely bit where they have to go to Naples to meet Rizza, who is Rebecca Ferguson's character, mm. who is an alien arms dealer. And they take a speedboat to go to this compound in Naples and... and Chris Hemsworth in sunglasses and pink chinos and a linen shirt, and you're going, yeah, that's Bond-esque. That's
3: quite nice. That's- it is interesting, isn't it? So the, the original trilogy was very much focused on 60s sci-fi tropes of alien invasions, time travel, and so on. This one tries to change it up and bring in other genres, definitely an international James Bond-style globe-trotting elements of the Star Wars creature feature, where who knows what sort of alien will walk through the door next. Does that work here? Do they bring something new to the table? As Sometimes.
5: Mm. Like I said, it does feel as if there are three or four scripts that mm. have been boiled together and, and smashed. So originally it was meant to be the Jump Street crossover. So yeah. there are scenes, especially at the beginning, that you don't understand where the payoff is or why that's there. And I think that's because that was from a previous script or whatnot. There's a particular scene where Hemsworth is playing poker with some alien arms dealers and it stops and doesn't seem to justify anything other than he's a bit of a ladies' man and he's not by the book Mm -hmm. you expect it to pay off and there's when he eventually meets Riza. you think Riza is the character from that scene and it's not explicit if it is or not and it's very what's this going on here but like I said the thing about having Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth is you're not thinking about that too much I did have the moment like Hitchcock always said where you, you go home you take the chicken out of the freezer and then you realise hang on that doesn't make sense but you don't realise it in the in the two hours or whatnot when the plot's going on because they are really nice and when they're talking to each other it's fantastic when the action scenes happen I did find myself getting a bit bored there's an elongating scene in Marrakesh where they're on a um, hover bike for, mm. for better or worse term and I found my self-glazing. I,
3: I don't care about this. There's another action sequence on Fleet Street, because a lot of this is shot in London on mm. location and it's a showdown sort of paying service to the previous films where they'd have these huge sci-fi weapons or a huge arsenal of guns, but they're having a gunfight outside of William Hill with the Gregs, just off off shots, which is a strange, enclosed and quite boring action sequence really, in a film like this. You want to just get them back to yeah. firing off each other the rather than firing at each other.
5: The Action scenes involving lasers and excessive CGI feel hollow. They feel very much carto- cartoony in the bad way. Mm-hmm. But there's a great physical action scene when they're in Naples where both characters are having a fistfight with their respective adversaries, which is quite lovely. There's a bit where Chris Hemsworth picks up a hammer and goes, now you're done for, and throws it. And went, uh, good, but very it's a, good.
6: a noticeably small hammer. Yes, yes.
5: <laughs> yes. Um, and that's what you want. You want Hemsworth and Thompson... <laughs> crackling about and doing things. Is this what you want, Adam? Yeah,
6: I, th- I think this works. I mean, you are talking about how the original was almost a send-up or a parody of those like old adventure movies and mm-hmm. sci-fi movies. I think this works better as a, a parody of espionage movies mm-hmm. and James Bond and that, and that whole thing. It, it certainly feels like that's what the original script was kind of more geared mm-hmm. towards. I think the problem with this film for me is it lacks conviction in anything mm-hmm. it does. It sort of rests a bit too much on its central pairing and doesn't really follow through with like is it going to be a kind of satire of contemporary blockbuster cinema is it going to just be like an all out buddy movie humour wise I think it was lacking a little bit I think the script mm-hmm. is falls flat quite often mm-hmm. you know they get by on their looks and their charm, but the film doesn't really bring much of that itself.
3: That lack of conviction is there. We mentioned this last week with Dark Phoenix where there are plot threads where if they doubled down and really explored them, it could have been quite interesting. One here being Tessa Thompson's character being a young girl who avoided being neuralized when she saw some aliens, so she spent her entire life knowing men in, the Men in Black exist but being told that she was delusional, even though she was a genius and was able to hack into NASA systems and track alien activity and there's something there that feels quite contemporary but it's forgotten quite quickly. Yeah, they use that as a shortcut to get her character
6: through the doors and then it's sort of never really picked up from there so Mm -hmm. she doesn't really use any of those skills or assets during the mission mm-hmm. that they end up going on. The whole thing just feels a little bit half-cocked and cobbled together, yeah. I think. Um, but saying that, it is mostly entertaining. Yeah. Um, I certainly wasn't... I think expectations were fairly low, so I certainly wasn't too disappointed with it. But, yeah, it just doesn't have that the charm and the and the humour of the original. Obviously, it doesn't have the theme song. Mm-hmm. doesn't have some of that kind of 90s nostalgia which actually I thought it was going to deliver. I mean, the mm-hmm. o- opening before the credits when you're seeing the film company logos, the the Columbia, is it Venus or someone, mm-hmm. raises her arm and puts on a pair of sunglasses. And I was like, oh, wow, this is going to be really light and funny and self-referential. There's a few moments like that. I think they do, there's a little nod to Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. Mm-hmm. And there's a few re- returning jokes as well, like the sight gag in the original of there being these like known aliens that walk among us, they live style. Mm-hmm. But in the original, I think it's like Sylvester Stallone and Steven Spielberg and, Steven Spielberg Lucas, and Newt yeah. Gringich and people yeah. like that. And here, I think they go for the most like, low-hanging fruit option imaginable, and it just f- fell very, very flat. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, again,
5: just a bit of a lack of conviction in, yeah. in, in here. There is a Nigel Farage joke, which is... <laughs> is
6: that a Nigel Farage joke? I was trying to work it out. It's... I think
5: it was. And this is the thing. When you talk about lack of conviction, there are little bits where you're going, is that a joke about that? Credit to... Some of the supporting characters, so Rafe mm-hmm. is Agent C, who is sort of like a hoity-toity-by-the-numbers British agent who hates Chris Hemsworth character. And they have quite good interplay, and he mm-hmm. carries quite a lot of the plot, especially in a second act that sags a little bit. Kumail Nanjali has Pawnee, which is this sort of CGI character who the moment he appeared on screen, I went, you're going to be a toy, yep. you're going to sell Happy Meals. And yet I didn't find myself... Grated by Pawnee's presence, I found him quite amusing. Unfortunately, I was
3: quite grated by his appearance. He felt to me like the the comedy sidekick, comic relief character that would be in a spoof of Men in Black in another movie. Right. If you're watching a sort of a Hollywood satire where the actors just signed up to be in a terrible sci-fi movie, there'd be this one-liner spewing uh, character for the kids, and maybe maybe it, I'm being jaded it here. Was, it was a character for the kids. Yeah. I found myself being quite
5: amused. There is a little bit. Where he has a little bit too much of the impact on the plot. So there's a certain scene I went, mm, no, 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 you stay <laughs> on the sidelines and and quit and don't it, do that. It's
6: like BB-8 saving the day in a Star Wars movie or something. You know, yeah. You, you always know a character like that is going to play a bigger role than they probably should do or would
5: do in, mm-hmm. that, in that scenario. But, but I found it pleasant. It's in that weird space where I would not recommend it to a friend, mm-hmm. but I would watch a sequel. Interesting. Because there is enough in there. There is mm. enough charisma and charm from two or three actors that I know if they had another swing at it with a proper, i say a proper script, I'd prob- yeah, Men in Black International 2 is probably going to be a good film. You this know. one is, hmm.
3: Well, that might be a good jumping off point. We'll talk about the first film and the franchise in general now in film club. But first, before we do that, let's put some scores on Men in Black International specifically. Carl, what would you give it in anticipation, enjoyment in retrospect? Um, anticipation, I'd say 2.
5: I think after Men in Black Three especially I checked out the entire franchise. Um enjoyment three, yeah, it's really really good three. And then I suppose in retrospect, I did try and defrost the chicken and realised mm-hmm. the entire first act didn't make sense. So uh, back on a two again.
3: Okay. Adam.
6: I'd go three three three, I think. For okay. This. Um I think the three in retrospect is purely bonus marks for Hemsworth and Thompson. This is a very sort of ropey script. There are so many annoying bugbears of mine which have sort of crept in now to seemingly all blockbusters. We had it last week in X-Men Dark Phoenix with the line, Jennifer Lawrence line about, you should call it X women mm-hmm. Similar sort of joke in here. It's that really kind of faux woke paying lip service to a kind of real, real world issue. And, and it's a bit like a, hey, all the ladies in the room, this one's for you. Mm-hmm. And I just felt very disingenuous and very flat to me. And having someone like you know Oscar-winning screenwriter Emma Thompson delivering a line like that is just like, yeah. So, feels very much like a, a film that was like written by blokes who have not really in touch with that scene to, to be kind of commenting on it and, and shoehorning it in here.
3: Well, we'll see if any more of those lines pop up throughout the the rest of the summer. Maybe Toy Story Four will have Bo Peep delivering a similar line. Spider-Man: Homecoming, who knows? We'll have think, to wait and see.
6: Bo, they already did that with Bo Peep and the poster. <laughs> Which, yeah, anyway.
3: Oh well, this, this is the, the theme of the summer. But let's go back to summer 1997. Coming up next, Film Club, in which we're talking about the original Men in Black. The original Men in Black as Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones as agents J and K, J being the New York cop who finds himself joining the ranks of the secret organisation that monitors alien activity on Earth, and K being the stalwart G man who has seen it all. It was released at the peak of Will Smith's stardom in the mid-late 90s, an adaptation of a little-known comic book that was a smash hit and spawned not just a franchise, but a platinum-selling title song recorded by Smith himself. Now, before Adam bursts into song, let's hear a clip.
4: Hey, man, what the hell is all this? Back in the mid-1950s, the government started a little underfunded agency with the simple and laughable purpose of establishing contact with the race not of this planet. you look directly at the end of this device... Administer the eye test. Everybody thought the agency was a joke except the aliens who made contact March 2, 1961, outside New York. There were nine of us the first night. Seven agents, one astronomer, and one dumb kid who got lost on the wrong back road. Oh, you brought that tall man some flowers. This way. They were a group of intergalactic refugees. Wanted to use the Earth as an apolitical zone for creatures without a planet. Did you ever see the movie Casablanca? Same thing, except no Nazis. Oh. We agreed, and we concealed all the evidence of their landing. Uh huh. So these are real flying saucers, and the World's Fair was just a cover-up for their landing. Why else would we hold it in Queens? More non-humans arrive every year, and they live among us in secret. Uh, look, I'm sorry not to change the subject or anything, but when was the last time you had a CAT scan? About six months ago. It's company policy. Ryan, You should make another appointment. Uh, look, tell you boys in, I had an absolutely wonderful time and thank you for everything, but uh, why don't you show me the door?
3: All right. I love that clip. I think that clip contains everything that's so great about this film. It's so tightly scripted, but with a little bit of wiggle room for the actors to bring their own charm and charisma and star power to the film. Carl, did you see this when you were a kid?
5: It was the very first film I remember seeing the cinema. So it was part of an after-school club trip Mm. Where, so I remember, you know, telling my mum, yeah. please sign the form. And <laughs> I remember being so excited. I thanked every single member of the the credits in the opening scene. <laughs> so watching as an adult was, it's brilliant, isn't it? Mm. Mm. It was far better than I thought. Well, you know, my child brain thinks this is fantastic. Let me rewatch it. No, this is legitimately one of the best Will Smith films we've got. And I think a lot of that is due to Tommy Lee Jones as mm. K being an amazing sparring partner. As you heard in that clip, Will Smith is riffing and trying to get under. K's skin and he's not flinching when last time we <laughs> got a cat yeah, about six months old. just repeatedly <laughs> yeah. being the perfect straight man that you want for a comedy like this yeah. it's a, one of those films it's under 90 minutes long it zips along at an amazing pace Will Smith allowed to do his electric stretchy fast riffing stuff Tommy Lee Jones is a perfect straight man it's so good and I was so surprised by watching it
3: yeah and Adam what was it like for you revisiting this
5: yeah great I mean we so we picked this because it's I don't know if
6: we mentioned this before, but it's like the only Will Smith film certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. That's strange. Which is basically... Feels not very harsh. Not, yeah. not that we use sort of re- reviews aggregators. It should not be used as a sort of barometer of quality ever. But I think for something to be certified fresh, it needs to have a certain number of reviews and be averaging above like 75% mm-hmm. positive. But very much surprised me that this was the only one. But I think there's good reason for it. It's one of those films that... Has aged, even with all the kind of some of the sort of CGI, but some of the action sequences and the way that like blockbusters have just evolved and changed since then often films from this era you have this nostalgic attachment to them but they maybe don't hold up so much but i think this one really does some of rick baker's prosthetics creature work are are just amazing i think it's just the script the humor the the stars they're all the things that are so important and and probably you know what you would say about some of the adventures movies in years to come is like things will probably move on and evolve but You'll always have those like stars. You'll always have those really tight scripts, the, the humour. All of that stuff will not age.
3: Mm-hmm. And it has a real imaginative visionary behind the camera as well Barry Sonnenfeld who hasn't really done much in the last maybe decade or so he had an incredible early 90s mid 90s where he did the two Adams Family movies and then this and they're films that just look incredible now he was previously cinematographer for the Coen brothers and then became almost the slightly more mainstream skewing Tim Burton who would do what the studios wanted and this strangely it has Danny Elfman doing the score Bo Welch doing the production design it's all Tim Burton's guys but delivering this zippy adventure with so many ideas taken from sci-fi films or I guess it's around the similar time of the X-Files there was interest in Roswell and cover-ups and everything and there's just so much to to chew on as you say Rick Baker I suppose his main contribution to this film it's one of the final films he worked on in a great capacity because CGI was breathing down his neck but it's the makeup for Vincent D'Onofrio as as Edgar as he goes on and his body is decomposing around this alien that's inhabiting him it's an incredible bit of physical performance but also physical makeup that you don't see now right oh terrified me as a child (laughs) (laughs) and it still resonates now as an adult it
5: is one of those you don't get that anymore Mm -hmm. there are so many great jokes and just great scene setting and i was talking to adam about this yesterday about how men in black the first film really reminds me a bit of when the first ghostbusters Mm -hmm. so if you go back and watch the first ghostbusters film part of you goes where's Slimer, where's this, mm. where's that, where's this? Because a lot of what you know as Ghostbusters was all the other assorted materials. Yeah. It was the cartoon, it was the comic book, it was mm. the lunchboxes and the toys and whatnot and whatnot and whatnot. And Men in Black had a similar impact when it came out in 97. I remember watching the cartoon as a child on British television. I remember having a lunchbox, I remember mm. having all the toys mm. and action figures and whatnot. So watching the film in the singular, again as adult, I was going, wait, where's the... And the? that was the cartoon. Mm. Yeah. Because it was such a huge cultural moment for about a year year and a half and again maybe because it linked up to X-Files maybe it was because Will Smith's enduring star power but it it is odd that we only had four of well we've only just seen the fourth film Mm -hmm, in this because mm -hmm. for a good 18 months Men in Black was all you could see
3: yeah But then Men in Black, watching this now, it makes me think of Jurassic Park, makes me think of Ghostbusters. These films that didn't necessarily need sequels or need to become franchises, they were happy to be their own self-contained, satisfying, hermetically sealed world. And in a way, maybe Men in Black is such a high concept that it doesn't suit a sequel. Even the film resolves very well with, with Kay retiring and Jay taking up the mantle, and it feels enough It hints at the world beyond, but it doesn't need to explore it.
6: Yeah, it's a time when films were conceived as a standalone vehicle. And I mean, by this point, Will Smith was by no means uh, a movie star really. I mean, he'd done, I think Enemy of the State is like the year after this, but he filmed it around yeah. a similar time and Independence it's before, Day is the year before, yeah, I think. Yeah, so Independence Day was the sort of star making thing, but even that, I mean, it's, it's a sort of big showpiece role for him, but I think this was the one that really made him a star, off, off, obviously off the back of Fresh Prince and everything else, but I mean, at that time, he, one of my favourite Hollywood anecdotes is that he referred to himself a uh, self-appointed Mr. Box Office because <laughs> he had a run of like, <laughs> I think it's like ten or twelve films which all broke hundred million dollars or something, or fifty million dollars at the box office, whatever it was back then. But and this was pretty much the beginning of that run. I think that the Independence Day and this were were those the films that launched it. I
3: think it was the film that finished at Ali, which we covered on the podcast a few months ago. Yeah, which
6: is actually a, a good film, but you know, but no it was a
3: it. box office flop completely, wasn't it? Carl, you did say there's legs in Men in Black International. You'd see a sequel, Adam. Do you think so? Do you think there's a TV series? Do you want? Do we want to see more from this universe, or really should it be put to bed?
6: I would. I would actually like to see more from it. I feel like there's a maybe a bit of a gap, which could be filled by something like this, where it is more of a sort of adventure romp. A mid-sized blockbuster I would maybe describe it as but it's not just about the spectacle it delivers some decent set pieces and action scenes but is more about those kind of central star power Mm -hmm. performances. I think the problem with the new film what the original Men in Black does so well is it really immerses you and involves you in the world of these aliens Mm -hmm. and in fact the new one is kind of lacking a lot of alien Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. interaction. The idea that aliens have existed and we've known about them for all this time and that essentially it's it's this immigration story and they're being protected you know you can kind of couch your sort of politics and everything else about, regarding that but it's just amazing to experience this world which is like so fully realised and lived in and all these different characters and there's the, the bit where we heard the clip earlier where Will Smith is sort of being introduced to this this sort of secret agency and, and you, when you first step into those doors it is like there's all these amazing colourful crazy creatures and you see a bit of that in the new mm-hmm. Men in Black but if, again it feels like they don't really commit to that and I just wanted a bit more of that so I think yeah I would watch another one of these yeah. and I, actually this one Men in Black International didn't feel like it was setting itself up too hard for a sequel mm-hmm. I suspect they'll see how it does and then maybe green light another one but I, I would just like to see them
5: do more with that
0: mm.
5: and you've already bought your ticket for the sequel Carl? yes <laughs> if, if, well if I'd watch another cartoon series. I'm assuming they're going to do a cartoon-tying series because, like you said, the world is so lovely and realised and the joy of Men in Black is it can be an anthology. If you want to Mm. do it properly, you've already established an international, now we know there's a New York office, we know there's a London branch, we know there's a Marrakesh branch. Mm -hmm. Just go with it. If you want to go off and have a detective noir thriller where there's an alien murder mystery, go do that. If Mm -hmm. you want to do a high-stakes, cosmic-level, big, booming CGI fight, go do that. There's plenty of playroom in Men in Black as a concept. I just hope if they do bring it back and do want to make another one, they get ambitious with it. And not ambitious in terms of scale, but in terms of storytelling.
3: Mm. Well, there you go. You've given some advice there, Carl. Thank you for sharing. That was Men in Black. We're going to go from Men in Black to The Man in Blue with Diego Maradona.
1: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B.
3: Director Asif Kapadia, whose previous documentaries include Senna and the Oscar-winning Amy, here combs through over 500 hours of never-before-seen footage to tell the story of footballer Diego Maradona, the player whose impact on the game in the 1980s was the stuff of legend. Now, Adam, I'm not a football guy. I'm going to presume many of our listeners aren't either. Is Maradona a figure that deserves the documentary treatment like this? I think he is,
6: absolutely. Um, He is someone who I grew up with a only a kind of cursory knowledge of I think by the time you know the Premier League was really kicking on and it was my sort of formative football years he was on the wane if and, mm. and pretty much kind of had, had retired or had certainly left Italy you know speaking to my dad about the players he admired and idolized it was always like Johan Cruyff and George Best and people like that and I think it's certainly over here Maradona was obviously this pantomime villain hate figure because of what happened in in Mexico 86. But yeah he's definitely someone whose story is, is ripe for a, a sort of big really you know meaty documentary treatment. This is quite a long film we've said 500 hours of footage I think the the best compliment you could pay to Kapadia is that he always delivers a very meticulously crafted story from you know what presumably was a lot of quite disparate material and the whole thing has this amazing cohesion to it mm-hmm. so it starts basically in i think it's 85 in the summer where he signs for ssc napoli at the time it was a world record transfer fee and i mean napoli were not a big club like the Serie A italian league was at that time the most watched league in the world i think even more so than you know the english league had all of the superstar players really um and he was the biggest at that time you know this is kind of post Pelé years but really before the likes of kind of Messi and Ronaldo and those guys would dominate the stage so he was the guy and him signing for a club of that size who who did not really have a reputation for winning trophies or anything was, was a bit of a shock and you know the film gets a little bit into the the deal and the politics behind that, but this is really yeah his sort of personal story and his journey and really the start of his most successful period in his career. It's almost the start of his downfall as well. Mm-hmm.
3: So both Senna and Amy uh, Capedius. Previous two docs were very successful, have their devotees. Senna, the, about Ayrton Senna, the Formula One driver, was so compelling, it made me think, do I like Formula One now? <laughs> Carl, do you think this is likely to turn people on to Maradona and football and the the beautiful game?
5: No, but that's because this is a different project. So, right. uh, one thing that comes across in Maradona compared to Amy and Senna is Maradona's still alive. Mm. Maradona is still alive. Maradona is still doing Maradona things. And when I mean Maradona things, I mean the bad things that you see in this documentary. Him doing, He's still the pantomime. If I'm being generous, I'm going to describe him as a pantomime villain. If I'm being harsh, I'm saying he's still repeating the same mistakes. Mm-hmm. This is a fantastic documentary. This is... Okay. I cannot stop thinking about this documentary. I cannot stop thinking about how little football is the focus. And right. what it is, is a great treatise on performance and how men present themselves to the world and what that does to them. So um, there's a fantastic American sports writer and he says, the most interesting thing about sports is everyone has a daily conundrum that they try and figure out. And sports allows you to watch some of the most athletic people in the world figure that out in real time compared to other mm. titans doing it at the same time. Now, some athletes, like Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan's terrified of dying. And you can see that anytime he's trying to do something. Tiger Woods is in this weird fight between wanting to achieve and do things and make his family proud, but also he desperately wants privacy. Maradona's thing is, and as the documentary consistently proves, is there is Diego, who is this boy who grew up in the slums of Florito in Argentina, which is, if you look at where he grew up in Argentina, it's one of the biggest cocaine dens in South America. It's dirt poverty. His family to this day, if you go to where he grew up, will be sifting through bins for food. There's Diego, who's that boy. Then there's Maradona, mm-hmm. who is the footballer, the one of the greatest footballers of all time, the man who struts and does keep up with his back heel and scores so many goals and has single-handedly poked the eye in all the great nations and slept with all these women and does loads of cocaine. Maradona was an invention Diego created, so he would never become Diego again. But what happens in sport, what happens with a lot of athletes and celebrities and men is basically the mask you put on to deal with your fears begins to eat your face. And that's what this documentary is about. This documentary is about how a man terrified of being forced back into irrelevance created a character to deal with all the stress and then slowly that character devours and consumes and destroys him. And I think that's what's really interesting about this documentary. Compare that to Senna, where Senna's thing is, Senna as an athlete was, I don't know what my limit is. There is no such thing as a limit. I will constantly chase perfection and I will eventually either reach Nirvana or reach my doom. That was what Sad was about. Mm-hmm. Amy was eventually about dads, because mm-hmm. unfortunately so many great famous people are about dads, whereas Maradona's thing is, who am I and how do I reconcile these two things? This documentary is just a discovery of that for so many hours,
3: and I just can't stop thinking about it. Wow. Has this stuck with you as well, Adam?
6: Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, there's lots going on aside from the football. In fact, I, I would say if you're someone who is not, interested in football or dislikes football this will not win you over this is not trying to say look how great football is in fact I think I came away thinking worse of football if that was possible because of this very much so but more of Maradona as a player because I hadn't seen I mean you know they go through 86 and the hand of God and all these things and and the famous goals are, are in there but you see a lot of his sort of week in week out play with Napoli and he was markedly several levels above everyone else on the pitch and you see these guys desperately trying to kind of hack him out and he's just sort of weaving through and waving this magical wand of a left boot and scoring some just outrageous goals. That is, on a pure kind of spectacle sporting level, is just a joy to watch. All of the stuff off the pitch, where he gets embroiled in various schemes with the Neapolitan Mafia, the Camorra, all of that stuff is really messy and thorny and i think the film does a good job of trying to explore that and explain how he got in the situation he did and how he was exploited basically i think it gives him a bit of a soft pass in terms of his own decision making and and his Mm -hmm. you know how culpable and responsible he was for certain things i mean there's this whole subplot with basically him fathering a child which he didn't acknowledge until actually like quite recently it's introduces a sort of tragic subplot in his story and and he's by no means like they don't say this was like a good thing that he did obviously but again I, th- I feel like it doesn't really scrutinize him enough mm-hmm. and there's a clip that they show at the end of him on Argentinian television in like 2004 where he is a bit of a kind of mere culpa and he breaks down and cries and says oh I've left it too late and you know I've, I've You know, there's no way to go back, basically. And it's very regretful and it's very sad to see. But it also, for me, wasn't very persuasive. It feels like maybe Crocodile Tears a little bit.
5: Do you think that's coloured by the fact that Marilyn is still alive?
6: Yeah, this is my issue with the film, I think, is that Kapadia likes these very clean, you know... You look at Senna and Amy, there's a very obvious end point to these stories and, and there's a kind of arc you can construct probably, you know, it's fair to say retrospectively you can apply a certain archetype and historical narrative to. We've seen it time and time again with these types of figures. With Maradona, the fact that he's still out there, alive and kicking, and, you know, at the FIFA World Cup last year, at which he was reportedly paid to be there as an ambassador, and he's there in front of millions, just behaving pretty reprehensibly. I think it does colour your... certainly coloured my experience of watching this film and my appreciation of him as someone that I should be invested in, um, is a tricky one. I think the film is really, really, really good when it's focusing on him at Napoli in the kind of 80s through to the sort of, I guess, late 80s, early 90s. 90s.
5: It, It more or less cuts off at 1991 and then you get the skip to 2004. And that 2004 press conference was really notable because that was the first time Maradona himself admitted he was a drug addict. But like you said, it's hard because in your brain, if you're a football fan, you have knowledge, the fact that Maradona was on a private jet mm. last summer to Russia doing a shot of tequila from his armpit. And behind him, there was a very large bag of cocaine. Mm. And this documentary tries to paint Maradona as a tragic figure. And he is a tragic figure. I think it doesn't quite make it overt that Mariano is a tragic figure of his own making. And that's not because of the documentary. That's because, so Capar does the same thing he does in Santa and Amy where there are no real talking heads. You get talking voices. So he interviews all the most important people and their voices fill in the gaps when you're watching this. Amazing thing about this documentary is it's for maybe, aside for maybe two or three minutes, it's told mostly in Spanish and, and Italian. The subtitles fill it in. And it doesn't, quite understand maradona is a tragic figure because of his own making because maradona himself does not understand he's a tragic figure of his own making because like we said maradona is still alive and maradona is still doing the bad things maradona does Mm. there's a great moment i think it's around about 1989 where maradona says he's done everything he wants to do at napoli he realizes he's a drug addict he wants to leave and the camera focuses on some home video footage of him playing in his living room and it holds it on Maradona's face and it zooms in and the music slowly fades out and it just gets this really grainy effect as you just watch this man who is very physically on the decline. he's got the cocaine bloat around his neck as he just sort of exhales and he's going and Maradona in the interview is explaining that he is trapped and he says he feels trapped because this club doesn't want to sell him whereas a better friend would say no you're trapped because you're a drug addict. You need to go see help. You need to go see rehab. You can free yourself if you stop being Maradona for a moment. And Coppola doesn't do that in these documentaries. There is no moment in Amy where someone walks in and goes, Amy, do not do that. Mm. There is no bit in Senna where someone walks in and says, Senna, you, you've, you've won enough. And that's why these documentaries are great. And that's why Maradona works as a great film. But you do kind of hope that someone does walk in And that's not this documentary's fault. Mm -hmm. It's Maradona's fault for still being alive and still doing cocaine.
6: Yeah, it's it's worth pointing out that he's by no means the only villain of the piece. Um, And, you know, he makes this deal with the devil and I guess it's a cautionary tale on that level. But from the president of of Napoli, the football club at the time, and all the Camorra, they they focus on this particular family who mostly appear here in sort of photographs and very occasionally there's a bit of footage of them. But I think Capaldi does really... Good job of keeping them just on the periphery, so they're they're almost this like spectre of, of a presence, this negative influence in his life. I think it is not so good on the as a social document of Italy in the eighties, and especially Napoli, which was this quite poor, almost like bankrupt city. It does sort of imply. That Maradona came in, and within a couple of years, you know, they were winning league titles, and the city was on the boom, and everyone was sort of happy again. I would like to have known a little bit more, had a little bit more context of the socio political situation and how that changed. You know, Maradona is a, is a part of that, but he's not the only kind of reason for that. And it's strange that he doesn't really explore that more because Capaldi is clearly interested in all the stuff that was happening away from football, with Maradona, with the with the mafia. With you know football as this sort of bigger institution in Italy, I mean you've got basically like the church and football, and those are the, those are the two religions. It's a fascinating portrait and snapshot of like Italian life and culture at that time. Yeah, I think really interesting, really well put yeah. together documentary, but some
3: reservations for me. And what scores would you give this, Adam?
6: I'm trying to think what I actually gave it in my review. Uh, I think I gave it like four, three, three. Ooh, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, what what formation is that? It's the most that popular is, one. That is the <laughs> that is the the trendy
5: uh, formation at the moment.
6: Yeah, 4-3-3. So I'm going with a with a fairly standard. Mm.
5: Yeah. And Carl? 4-5-4. Four, four. I think this was stunning. Yeah. Um I'm massive sports nerd, sports documentary as well. Um so the football fan in me was enlivened by the extra footage and the extra detail. And the, I had no idea about that. I had no idea about that. I had not seen that goal from that angle. And there are parts in this documentary where if you just like football, like you describe them, there are bits where Maradona will get a ball and do something and you just go, "Woof, mm. he's amazing. There is this great thing where they... Great thing. Um, troubling thing where many characters refer to Maradona as a god or like a god or how he saved Naples and how he saved us as people and... That ultimately spells his doom. But there are moments in in the documentary that he will get the ball and do something and you cannot help but believe in the divine right of kings. Wow. Because it's mesmerising. There's a moment right at the beginning where he gets the ball, does a few keepy uppies and then flicks it onto his right heel. And you you should not be able to bounce a ball on your right heel. There's not enough muscle or sinew or whatever for you to get an adequate touch however you should be tapping that ball. And he does three or four, gets bored, whacks it, and you're going, What? It's great and it's edifying in that way of some athletes, yeah, I'm a child of 1991. I read Maradona in a magazine and I was told he was one of the best football players in the world. And then you watch his documentary, you go, blimey, what talent? And then you go, blimey, what, what a fall. And then you go, where were your friends? Where are your friends now? Which ultimately is like sort of the through-led in, in all these documentaries. I would just sort of caveat.
6: I mean, watching this, even if you don't know anything about Maradona now, I would not come out of this with any sympathy for him Mm. because ultimately he was extremely successful. He's still around. He's still being paid thousands of pounds by FIFA to turn up to football games and do what he likes and he seems fairly cosy and happy in his life, frankly. And, you know, okay, he's... uh his downfall, his physical decline I think is the most shocking thing. I think this is like one of the best like anti drugs and anti like binge drinking films for that. But yeah, I don't know. I I was a little bit felt a little bit conflicted over whether the film was trying to make me sympathise with him in the way it does Senna and Amy Uh, uh, in terms of the
3: tragic arc that they... It sounds really fascinating unfortunately we're going to have to call full time on the Diego Maradona discussion, it's a shame we don't have an extra time podcast to go deeper, but that's in cinemas this week, as is Men in Black International next week, new releases are Toy Story 4 (laughs) summer season continues and as a nice bit of cheeky counter-programming, the reboot of Child's Play the uh, evil toy horror movie and so for Film Club next week we're going to be looking back at Seed of Chucky which is the 2004 entry in the franchise which I mean that's a long franchise
6: It's a long franchise so Seed of Chucky I've not seen Mm -hmm. but have on good authority that it's like the best of those sequels
3: Yeah. Listeners if you agree with Adam's uh, hunch there let us know or if you don't let us know at the usual channels, at Truth and Movies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolinder.com via email, or at the comments section at lblis.com slash podcast. Adam, Carl, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production.